and uh, I don't have a lot of stories to tell tonight because this story is really good. You don't need to add a lot to this story. There's a lot to cover, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, the title of the message tonight is Unlikely Shalom because the, uh, the peace that only God gives is the key theme in this chapter. And so um, if you uh, remember from last week, Rob preached through chapter 42, and the theme was fear. And tonight, we're going to see how fear dissipates into peace. And so um, we, we've covered this before in this Genesis series, but it's been a few, few chapters ago. But the, the word peace in Hebrew is shalom, and it occurs four times in this chapter. Uh, and shalom is not just like peace like we think about it. It's like it's a large word that means completeness or wholeness or welfare, safety, health, prosperity, friendship, peace in general. So it's very broad. Wholeness is a, is a, a big difference between just something that's not war, right? And so um, we, we really aren't sure as we're reading this passage, like how much time has transpired between chapter 42 and chapter 43. But we do know that God is working to restore peace to Jacob's family. All right, we know and we've seen time and time again how there's just a lot of dysfunction in Jacob's family. And um, uh, one of our commentaries, Ian Dugan, said this. He said, God isn't merely using Joseph as a convenient pawn to provide the food that Jacob's family needed to survive a major food crisis. His goal was to restore and renew the, the family's deeply broken relationships. And for that to happen, Joseph needed to be able to see that his brothers had changed. And so we're going to see a, a massive difference in Joseph's brothers just in this chapter. Right? And, and we know, like, Months have definitely passed, potentially years, since the brothers were last in Egypt. We're not sure how much, but we do know that the threat of the famine is still very severe because that's how the chapter opens. And so we know that, the, that this is serious, like the promised line, right, the God's covenant people, this family is in peril, okay? And so um, we're going to see how God Almighty is able to bring unlikely peace to any fractured family through this passage tonight. So, um, if you're not there already, Genesis 43, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive into verse 1. Father God, we uh, praise you tonight uh, for bringing us to this place. We praise you for um, allowing us to hear how you're working all across the world. God, how your gospel's moving forth, and uh, how you're advancing your church. Uh, we thank you that you have never stopped working since the beginning of time. We thank you that you're intimately involved with all of our ways, and, and I praise you that every person that's here um, under the teaching of your word, uh, Lord, is here tonight or listening later. We know that you can speak to us, that you are speaking to us, and we believe that your word is alive and active. It's powerful. Lord, it, it never returns void. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that you would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that you would unstop our ears, that we might be able to hear and see what you would have us to hear and see, that so we can know you more and love you deeper tonight while we leave this place. Thank you for the peace that you give us in Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Verse 1, starting in chapter 43, now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go, Again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man. So you're going to hear this often, okay, in this passage. The man. 
the man is Joseph, all right? So they don't know that. But the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face until your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so y'all remember Judah, okay? He's the fourth oldest son of Jacob. He's the, he's the leader, okay? So he's right now, he's standing up to, to Jacob and saying, hey, man, we're not going to go if you don't send Benjamin with us. And so Israel, Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? He's like, we wish you would have lied. Why'd you do that? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will pledge I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we, do, if we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So right here, you could say that Judah is being a little bit sassy with Jacob, right? Like he's like, he's like Dad, if you wouldn't have delayed us, we could have already taken this trip and been back twice. Right, so but the fact that you're delaying us is putting our families in jeopardy. And, and you can tell just by these verses that Jacob's not in a good spot, right? Rob explained last week how he's living out of fear, and, and, he, he, and he rightly has, for, for his sons, he, he has a good reason to kind of not trust them, right? Like, this is the second time that they've left the house and come back lest one son with extra money. That's kind of fishy. And, and so he's like, uh, why, would I, why would I send another son with you? You, you? you keep coming back with less one son, and weirdly, strangely, you have more money every time. Right? And so, but what we do know is that Jacob is really focusing on his situation, right, instead of his sovereign God. He's afraid he's going to lose Benjamin, and he's not focused on Yahweh, Right? He, he's focusing on his circumstances, he's focusing on his situation, and he's not focusing on the unchanging, covenant-keeping faithfulness of God. He sure isn't exercising the faith of his grandfather, Abraham, who was very willing to sacrifice Isaac. So Jacob could have used a healthy dose of Psalm 111, which says this, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. So Jacob might be starving and sweating and afraid, but he knows something needs to be done. Something's got to change or else they're not going to survive. And so that's when Judah steps up. Right? And, he, and he's like, I'm going to be the leader, which is, which is crazy because this is a very different Judah than we've seen in the past. He's not here being like self-preserving um, or self-seeking. Or he, he's, like, he's like, I'll take full responsibility for Benjamin. Put him in my care. I'll put myself on the line 
And, and so, because he, Judah realizes the situation is dire, something needs to happen, and, and it's got to happen fast, because this is critical. This is a grave situation. If, if you don't understand that, look at verse 8. It's very clear. Everybody will die if we don't act. Everyone will die, right? So this is an imminent threat. They don't know when the famine will end, right? They, they aren't privy to Pharaoh's dreams nor Joseph's interpretations. They have no clue what's going on, right? So Jacob, his children, and his grandchildren are about to starve to death, and God's promised seed is threatened if this line ends. But we know that God will preserve his people. He always has. He always will. And he has already set a plan in motion because he's always working. By the way, aren't you glad that our God isn't like Jacob? Aren't you glad that, that God's a better father than Jacob? Right? Like, like he didn't pause when he thought about salvation. God wasn't reluctantly sending Jesus to the earth, right? He, he didn't hesitate to send his beloved son, right? He, he is always working. He who didn't spare his one and only son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so God gave up Jesus knowing what we would do to him. Jacob has no clue what's going to happen to Benjamin. God knew exactly what would happen to Jesus. That's not amazing grace. I don't know what is. Let's pick up with the narrative back in verse 11. It says, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother, that's Simeon, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So y'all remember Jacob is like a crafty dude, right? He's always got a plan. He's always trying to preserve himself, and so he's always trying to smooth things over. And so here, he gets a gift together, for Joseph to, to smooth them over. Hopefully they'll receive my sons better if there's a, a, a good present. And he obviously doesn't know that this is Joseph, that the man is Joseph. But it's ironic that this caravan that's going down with all the products of the land and with money is exactly like the caravan that took Joseph to Egypt in the first place. Whereas the things are coming full circle here. And little did Jacob know that the money in the sacks was not an oversight. Joseph did that on purpose, right? He was testing his brothers to see if they were still deceitful. You see, because he knew that they had been lying to their father for years, and he wants to see if they've changed at all. And so Jacob finally relents and lets them go, and he lets them go this time with a prayer, right? And he thinks he's already lost Joseph. Now he's risking losing Simeon and Benjamin, because if they're all kept there, then he loses all of them. And so he prays that God Almighty would have mercy on their journey. May El Shaddai have mercy through the man, through Joseph. 
right? Jacob's not a man of peace, but he prays this not knowing that Joseph has already shown great mercy to his family, right? They have not been treated how they deserve. Not knowing him, Jacob and the brothers refer, reference Joseph as the man. They continue to say this, the man. And it's, this is how, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who's talked like this, but isn't this how a lot of people talk about God, about a higher power, the man upstairs? You've ever heard somebody say that? Yeah? Like this, this mysterious ruler. They, they don't know who God is. They don't know him, so they refer to him as the man, right? Perhaps the man upstairs will have grace on us. Perhaps the, the man upstairs will be merciful to, to us. Perhaps the man upstairs will, will be generous to, to us. And so the brothers take Jacob's present. They take double the money, and they take Benjamin to the man. This is the second trip to Egypt, right? And, and they wanted to accomplish four things. Number one, they needed to get food so they don't die, Number two, they needed to bring the money back to prove that they aren't thieves. Number three, they needed to get Simeon out of prison to prove their loyalty to their brothers since they came back to get him. And number four, they needed to bring Benjamin to prove to Joseph, the man, that they aren't liars. So they had a, a lot to accomplish in this trip. Let's pick back up in the narrative in verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did, the servant did, as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replacing our sacks for the first time, that we're brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. They're afraid they're going to lose the donkeys. Like Joseph needs the donkeys, right? It's, it's, it's like somebody showing up in your driveway with like a 1972 Ford Pinto. You don't need that, you know? Joseph doesn't need this, okay? And, and they're afraid, right? They think they've, they, they've been caught, been found out. And, and a lot of people, like if you were in Joseph's position, if you were a higher up, an executive in Egypt, you had dungeons in your own house. You had a prison in your own house. And so they're like, they're, why would strangers be invited in into this ruler's home, right? We're, we're surely going to be thrown into prison here. We're going to take everything we have, and we're never going to see dad again or anybody else. So they're like, we got to act fast. So they went up to the steward of, the, of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. They haven't even gone in yet. They're afraid. And said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. And so we have brought it again with us. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. You all remember when last time it says they, they questioned, they said, what is God doing to us? What's God doing to us? And here, God was doing this to them. He's testing them through Joseph, right? This is the second reunion that they're having with Joseph, but they have no idea that it's their brother. They're leery of Joseph's hospitality because of what happened in the first journey and the return journey home, and they quickly explain themselves, probably really nervously, to this attendant. 
And, and they're showing a change of character here, right? They're saying, we're, we're men of integrity. We said we were, and we're proving it because we're back. And we've got everything that we, we, we don't know how this happened. We don't know why this happened, but here we are, right? And because they've been deceitful. Now they're being honest. And, and so they're, they're trying to come clean, trying to come clean. And the steward of Joseph's house must have known of Joseph's God. He must have known of, of Jehovah Shalom of the, the God of peace because God's peace surpasses all understanding and sustains even through difficult times. And this was his reply to the brothers. In verse 23, he said, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. So even if he didn't believe based on what he just said, by him bringing Simeon out of prison, they were like, we're not going to prison. He brought our brother out. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they're not taking our donkeys. They fed them. They're taking care of them. They prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. Like, like put yourself in their situation. Could they have received any more welcoming words from the steward of the house? Right? Peace. Shalom. Wholeness be to you. Don't be afraid. You have no need to fear. It's all squared away. You're satisfied. Like, fulfilled. Your God, the God of your fathers, Elohim, the one true God, has paid the debt that you owed. Like, you're fulfilled. We've got everything we need. And so now, let's get ready for lunch. You prepare what you need to prepare for. Let's get ready because the ruler's coming. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to the ground. They bowed to him on the ground. This is the fulfillment of the first dream. And I find it shocking that Joseph doesn't go, ha, see, I told you, you're bowing right now. Like, I, I told you guys, you didn't believe me, and you're doing it. And they would have been like, what, you, what in the world, right? He's not rubbing it in their face. This is crazy. This is humility. This is self-control, right? Look, verse 27, and he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. So this is where shalom is mentioned three more times in this text, in the Hebrew. Now, in our English passages, it doesn't say this in the English translation. The words welfare and well are translated shalom, right? And Joseph is asking how they're doing. He cares. He's showing abundance of compassion and care for them. They see this. They acknowledge it. So you're wondering, what, what's their response going to be? And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Wow. Right? Like, like at first, they, they come before him, and they're kind of like this, you know? Like, this is a sign of respect, humility. Like, we're going to bow before someone who's, you know, I make my head available. If you want to chop it off, you can. But, like, here I am. Right? And here, Joseph doesn't rub it in their faces. He doesn't lord it over them. He's not being oppressive to them. And he, and he asks, he cares about them, and he says, how are you doing? Are you well? How's your father? Is he well? Is he okay? Are y'all whole? Do you have everything you need? 
right? He's showing great care and compassion here. This is the second time that dream number one is fulfilled. And it's absolutely shocking to see their response, right? Like they prostrated themselves before Joseph, but they have no idea it's Joseph. This is just some random ruler of the most powerful empire on planet earth. And they have laid themselves out before him. And I found myself asking this question because you don't often see the word prostrate, right? Like, and, and oftentimes, maybe sometimes you've been led to get on your knees in prayer. But we don't greet people in our culture like this, right? And, and if you've never been somewhere where they, like, kneel before, th- like, shrines or other people before, and it's kind of weird. You've never, never seen that in your, in your, in your life. But to, to get on your knees and then to lay on your face before someone is an utter act of submission and surrender, right? And so I found myself asking a very sobering question of me to me. I, I was talking to myself for a couple of weeks this past week. Do you ever do that? Yeah, always. Um, and I, th- I thought to myself, when's the last time that I prostrated myself before the Lord? When's the last time that I got down, not only on my knees in prayer before the Lord, but I humbled myself so far that I laid out before him? Right? We, we often don't see that in the public. But we should be doing that, right, in our private prayer closet. Like, I hope that Red Oak, we would be a church who humbly bow down, that humbly surrender to the Lord. That when we come and talk to him, we're realizing and remembering who we're talking to, who we're approaching, who we're before, and that we would come under his authority. That that we would bow to the ground and prostrate ourselves and saying we're under, we we surrender, we submit, we're, we're giving up. So when's the last time that you did that in your life? When's the last time that you bowed down knowing who you're bowing to? The Prince of Peace. Because they didn't know who they were bowing to. But our Prince of Peace has purchased for us perfect peace. So that when we come before him, we know we're going to be welcomed with grace and mercy. We know how we're going to be received. We don't have to come in fear. And I wonder what Joseph's reaction was to his brothers. Because he could have walked over and like put his heel on the back of their head when they were on the ground. But look at verse 29. It says that he... Joseph lifted up his eyes, saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. He sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Y'all, it's been over 20 years since Joseph has seen his brother. He is overwhelmed Like, this is an extremely emotional time for Joseph. Benjamin was Joseph's only blood brother, right? They've got the same father and the same mother, and the only one, Benjamin, is the only one who didn't betray Joseph. And this is the first time he's seen him in decades. And so he's overcome with compassion and care and affection for his brother. And it's interesting to note 
How different Joseph, the ruler, treats his brothers when Benjamin is with them versus how he treated them when Benjamin wasn't there. Right? Think about this. The brothers are treated harshly without Benjamin. But with Benjamin, the dearly loved son, they're treated graciously and kindly. When we approach God without Jesus, it's harsh. He even says, you can't see my face. We, we, we can't come before him. We can't even get into his house without the beloved son. But when we approach God with the beloved son, we're welcomed in to dine with him. Right? Because the beloved son makes all the difference in the world. What we are about to see in the remaining few verses is very strange. These are cultural differences, all right? So, so between Hebrews and Egyptians, we're not going to really be able to understand it all that well, but we are going to see Joseph's gracious generosity and his next test for his brothers. Verse 31, then he washed his face and he came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And so they served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. So there's, there's three tables, right? Joseph's got a table, the Egyptians have a table, and the Hebrews have a table. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. So I don't know if your family does this or not. My, my aunt does this every time we're there for their family, which is around a holiday. Um, there's literally name tags at the place where you are supposed to sit. You don't just sit wherever you want in her house, right? Like, you got to go through the line, get the food, and then you go sit where your name is placed. And so that's basically what, like, Joseph had set up a name place, like, at, at the table. And it wasn't just random. Like, he knew them intimately. They were his brothers. And so he had, he had set them according to their birth. And it says that they... When the men looked at one another in amazement, they're like, "Who? what's going on? We're, we're shocked, right? This is, this is unlikely that we've been welcomed like this. This is unlikely that we've been treated like this. This is unlikely. He's, he's caring about us. He's showing compassion. This is unlikely shalom. And now it's like he intimately knows us, but we don't know who this dude is. What's going on? Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. This is shocking, y'all. Like Jacob's sons, all of Jacob's sons, all 12 of them, merry, happy. This is astonishing, right? Like before, we can't even speak peace to you. Now, they don't know who it is, but this is amazing, Right here, we're seeing a reunion, not yet reconciliation. We know that that's the ultimate goal. That's what this, this narrative is working towards. Right? And we're going to see that in the weeks to come. But this is, right now, the brothers are like, there's, there's some kind of insider knowledge. We don't understand what's going on. But, but this is strange. But we like it. This is nice to be treated like this. And so we find that the close of the chapter is very different from the beginning. And it's very different from how last chapter ended, right? The last chapter closed with fear, apprehension, right? Now here, in chapter 43, we see peace and merriment, right? Joseph has yet to reveal his true identity because he's not done testing his brothers. He didn't want to tell them who he is yet because he wants to see if they truly have changed. He's seen a little bit of fruit, but he wants to see if they've truly changed. They still have no idea 
that it's Joseph. I think it's fascinating that the brothers are in their brother's house and they have no idea that it's Joseph. That they're dining with their brother, but they don't see him. Many in the church today don't see the Lord. They come to church, they read their Bibles, but they don't see the Lord. They don't know the Lord. The brothers didn't know that this was Joseph, and many today don't know the Lord. They don't know the ruler of all. And for for all their church attendance, for all their involvement, they miss Jesus. So may we pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see, to hear his word, even now. Now, interesting that Joseph gave Benjamin five times more food than anybody else. And it comes directly from his table to his brother. He's testing them. Are my brothers still envious? Are they still jealous? Because they'd been jealous of me before when dad treated me well, when he showed favoritism towards me, they were super jealous. And now Joseph is like, I wonder if they've changed. I wonder if they've been treating Benjamin how they treated me. And they could have been like, dude, look at my, look at, look at Ben's plate. Like he's got so much more than we, 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 what is going on? This is not fair. What's happening? I got gypped. But that's not how they respond at all. Right? They are, they've dramatically changed. Like this is, there's a transformation happening here in amongst the brothers. And Alan Ross points out a very detailed manner of their transformation. I'm going to just read it to you. He says this in his commentary. In this chapter, the brothers promise to take the blame for any catastrophe. They're taking responsibility. They acknowledged their culpability and made restitution for the money in their sacks. They're being honest. They retrieved their brother from prison in Egypt. They're showing unity. They recognized that God was at work in their midst. They're, they're showing belief. And they rejoiced in their provisions even when their brother was receiving more than they were. They're showing gratitude. This is incredible transformation, right? This is fruit and, and a change of character. The chapter starts out in dire straits, but it ends with food, drink, and merriment. The word for merry can be translated intoxicating. This is an exhilarating night. It's super, super exciting. So this chapter ends far different than it began. Like, just think about the brothers' peace and joy at the end of this chapter compared to the beginning, where they're like, we're going to die if we don't go, right? They have peace of pardon because they They've proved that they weren't thieves. And, and they have peace of unity because they got Simeon back out of prison and they didn't lose Benjamin. And they have peace of assurance for the future because they have more food to take back with them so that they'll survive and their family will survive. So how excited they must have been to have been met with such peace and unity and provision. But the famine is still severe in the land. Right? Their circumstance of the famine hasn't changed. But what has changed is now they know the ruler intimately, right? Like, and, and so today, to, to think about our situation, our circumstance, our environment, right? Today, sin in our land, sin in our hearts has caused there to be a famine of peace. Would you agree? 
Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like in your life, you're in a season of famine. You're, you're in a season of famine, of peace. You have no shalom in your life. So, so ask yourself that. Think deeply about that, not only tonight, but this week. Is there shalom in your life? Is there shalom in your family? Is there shalom like in your sphere of influence, in your community? Is there, where's there shalom in the world? Like how can we get peace? But it only comes through Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Right? God used the Prince of Egypt to restore shalom with his covenant family. And God sent Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to restore shalom with us and one another. So this narrative reminds us that God has the power to provide peace to any family. No matter how broken, no matter how fractured, no matter how splinted, God can provide peace for you and your family. Think about how often Joseph is foreshadowed as Jesus, right? It's unreal when you sit back and you think about it in the big picture of things, right? Pastor Colin Smith, he's done extensive work on just the, the Joseph narrative and where he sees Christ in the passage and the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And I'm just going to do some quick overview as we close our time tonight. Joseph was loved and favored in his father's house. So was Jesus. Joseph was hated and despised by his brothers. So was Jesus, hated and despised by his brothers. Joseph was blessed and successful in the house of Potiphar. Jesus was blessed and successful in his ministry. Joseph was tempted and faithful by Potiphar's wife. A picture of Christ, Jesus was tempted and faithful and was not overcome by sin, but overcame sin and is able to stand as our Savior and Deliverer because of it. Joseph was trusted and accused, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Jesus endured false accusation and was silent, much like Joseph. Joseph didn't look to Potiphar's wife or anyone else to save him. He didn't try to defend himself. Joseph didn't look... Jesus didn't look to Pilate or to Judas or anyone else to try to save him, but he just entrusted himself to the Father. Joseph didn't complain about his plight. He didn't blame Potiphar's wife. He didn't blame his brothers. He simply trusted that God is God. He simply trusted in God's promises. If you think about the chain of events that led to where we are in chapter 43 right now, it's astonishing. If Joseph never goes to prison, he never meets the cupbearer and the baker. If he never meets the cupbearer and the baker, he never ends up in Pharaoh's court. If he doesn't end up in the court of Pharaoh, he isn't able to save up the food for the nation. If he isn't able to save up the food, his family dies and Judah with them. And if Judah dies, then the line of Judah is no more and the promised seed, Jesus the Messiah, is ended. But because Judah is saved, there's a line of Judah. And through the line of Judah comes the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ is born. Therefore, at the end of time, there's this great multitude of people surrounding the throne worshiping King Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. All of this because of Joseph's faithfulness to trust in God's sovereignty, even in the spite of suffering. This is astonishing. Joseph was wise and discerning, and he had wisdom in Pharaoh's court. Jesus is full of the Spirit, and is wisdom. Joseph's brothers, they can represent us. 
and their response to Joseph, the favored son. The brothers becoming aware of God's hand in their lives. They're becoming aware of their awakened to their own sin. They're taking responsibility. The Holy Spirit brings us to Christ by opening our eyes to see our great need in light of his holiness. But just because someone's awakened to the reality of their sin and they're convicted doesn't mean that they're going to turn in repentance. The brothers are welcomed and fed in the presence of Joseph. And the gospel welcomes all and feeds all who come. And that's what we're called to do as the church. The brothers are tested and they're transformed. Now we know the narrative is moving towards reconciliation, but we're not there yet. Maybe you need to pursue reconciliation and peace in any broken relationship in your life starting tonight. Maybe that reconciliation isn't possible because the person you need to be reconciled with has passed away. Let me close by reading this quote from Ian Duguid. Even if your family remains unreconciled here on earth, ultimately God has a plan for the complete shalom of all of his people in heaven. There, all of our families will finally be made whole. All of the sinful brokenness that now causes us such pain will be fully healed, and all of the tears that we have shed over our families will be wiped away as we are made fully one in Christ. What a vision of the future, right? Perfect peace with those who have put their faith and trust in Christ alone. So here's the challenge for us. Don't stay in the famine, right? Don't stay in the famine. Feel the weight of it. Feel that it's serious. Feel that something's got to change, right? But, but there is peace made possible by the Prince of Peace. So realize that only Jesus can bring the shalom, the wholeness that you desperately need, that I desperately need, that our family desperately needs, that our community desperately needs. So I pray that we would humble ourselves before the Lord, that we would bow and surrender to the Prince of Peace. And when we find ourselves doing that, then we'll realize that we can dine with him forever. And we can end our lives like this chapter ends with food and drink and merriment. Man, I pray that we would be intoxicated with his love. Let's pray. Father, we praise you so much for not being stingy. God, we praise you for willingly sending Jesus to this place to enter into our lack of shalom. We praise you for for seeing, Lord, and for acting, for, for not waiting We praise you for your perfect timing. We praise you for being a good and compassionate ruler who knows your people intimately, who provides for us fully. Lord, you care about our joy. You care about our peace or lack thereof. And I praise you that through Jesus, you have provided perfect peace for us that we can start experiencing that right now on this side of heaven, but that we also get to look forward to it with great anticipation. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict our hearts where we have been grieving you because of our lack of trust, because we have been focused on our circumstance, we've been focused on our situation, because maybe our environment hasn't changed in a while, And we've taken our eyes off of you. 
and we've forgotten that you are a God who never changes, that you always fulfill your promises, that your word always comes true. We praise you for us being able to see all of these things in this passage tonight. How awesome is your word? How awesome are you, O God? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.